0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, let me start by making a bit of a confession to you. Uh, Two weeks ago, Pastor Robert preached a sermon about that that the central truth was that our suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. And here's my confession I want you to hear. I just really didn't like that sermon. Now, here's what's important for you to know. It wasn't the preacher. It wasn't the words that he spoke or the way that he delivered it. It, w- it was the content. It was the truth that it sent on. And unless you think anything else, here's what I need you to hear. My family has been transformed more by the proclamation of the gospel from Pastor Robert's mouth than by any other person. You you I'll tell you this as a poor a, a team of people gathering together as Redeemer Georgetown. That is, as your pastor, as one of your pastors, Pastor Robert, proclaims the gospel as you hear it, as you are involved in this family of believers, the Lord will do beautiful things in your life, in your marriage, in the lives of your children. It wasn't him. It was the fact that the sermon was founded upon a presupposition. And the presupposition was this, we will suffer. And if I'm just being honest, I don't like that. Now, some of you guys may be far tougher than me. Some of you guys may be masochists and enjoy that. But for me, if I'm being honest, most of my life has been built around trying not to suffer and yet what we were told is that we will suffer. I remember early on in ministry. Uh, Robert preached a sermon and he said something from the pulpit. I don't know if it was his words or or, or a quote that he gathered from somewhere else, but I, I blame it on him. He said this. He said, you are either going into a storm, currently in a storm, or just coming out of a storm. And I remember hearing that and going, nope, not okay with that. Let's figure something else out. You are either going into a storm, currently in a storm, or coming out of a storm. And I didn't say no to it because I didn't experientially believe it was true. I internally said no to it because I wasn't okay with it being true. Listen, the life of all humanity in a fallen world is marked by suffering and struggling and wrestling and sorrow and depression and anxiety and loss and opposition it's real, and it's hard. And Pastor Robert preached that it's, even though it's real and even though it's hard, it's nothing to be compared to the glory that awaits us. But the question becomes, do we just have something eventually that will make the suffering worthwhile? Or maybe another question that we might ask is, what do we do in the midst of our suffering? Is there help for us? Is there comfort and kindness? And Paul begins this passage with a loud declaration saying, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. You know, these next four verses that we're going to unpack this morning are are quoted all the time. These are maybe like coffee cup verses that you might have seen, right? Entire sermons or sermon series could be based on these individual verses and truths that Paul is about to utter for us, yet they're not individual. Paul proclaims all of these truths coming off of the backdrop of what he just said, which is the entire world all of creation is groaning underneath of the brokenness that we experience. Paul begins the, the verse in 26 with the word likewise. Literally, he, he says, in the same breath, on the same topic, regarding the same thing. So with all of truth that I just laid out about how Creation was subjected to suffering and groaning, awaiting for redemption. Likewise, in that same topic, hear this, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I love the the word help here, the the Greek word that's used. It, It doesn't mean that the Spirit sends us aid. Right, I worked in emergency management early in my career, and part of what we would do is, is help organize federal resources to be sent out to states and localities that experience disasters. That's a, that's a form of help, and it's an important form of help, but it's also a distant form of help. The Spirit is not helping us like that. This word for help literally means he joins us, he partners, like some that comes along on our hip that put their arm around us when we can't bear weight on our leg to carry us. The Spirit helps us. He is near. This suffering, he says, the Spirit has to help us because we are weak. And that weakness is caused by our suffering. Suffering. Same Greek word is used in the Gospels and oftentimes interpret infirmities or illness. When Jesus heals people that are sick, it says they are, this word, weak. It's not that we're just inadequate. Paul is saying that there is a weakness, an illness that slowly corrodes us because we live in the midst of this broken world and we are broken people. In other places, he says that we are outwardly wasting away. You know, there's a, a running joke now about me getting older, and it's beyond just the fact that I've got white in my beard. It's that now, in order to have a good night's sleep, I have to stretch before I sleep. <laughs> have you gotten to that place? There's a lot of young people here. I just want you to know it's coming. Okay? You are, you're strong, and you've are just you've got a vitality And there is coming a day before you get in bed, you go, oh, I better stretch out a little bit so I don't hurt myself while I sleep. I am wasting away. Not by pounds, but by strength. Listen, there is a weakness that we all have, and we try and cover it up. As I said, most of us live our life trying not to be weak trying not to suffer, trying not to feel the effects of the brokenness of this world around us. And yet there are moments in our life that come in and we recognize that we can't deny we are weak and that those that we love are weak, our relationships are frail and weak. And Paul says the Spirit will help you. So how does he help us? How does the Spirit join us, comfort us, aid us in our weakness? Well, Paul, over the next few verses, unpacks it, and he tells us the three ways that the Spirit helps us. If you take notes, write this down. If you don't take notes, write it down anyways. Three ways the Spirit helps. One, the Spirit helps us in prayer. The Spirit helps us in prayer. Two, the Spirit helps us with a promise spirit helps us with a promise and finally the spirit helps us as a pledge as a pledge the spirit helps us in prayer with a promise and as a pledge and as we get into this let me just say that Juan if you're suffering now if you're weak or feel frail or or feeble then as much as I want to get you the full doctrinal scope of these beautiful verses can I just encourage you, without trying to catch every detail, just listen for the comforting voice of your Father this morning. Because if these verses say anything, it's that He's with you in the midst of your suffering and he cares for you. And so, if you're in the midst of suffering, hear the voice of your Father. If you're not currently suffering, if you would say life is good and I feel like I have my wits about me and I can see what's going on in my life, maybe even what the is doing in my life, then allow these words now to fortify and strengthen your soul. Because when you are in the midst of the storm, it's so hard to get our arms around these truths if we don't already have our lives saturated in them. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? First, the Spirit helps us in our prayer. He goes on and he says... Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul is Blunt. He's one of those friends that we all enjoy because he is full of wisdom, but he's also one of those friends that you feel like you have to apologize for every once in a while because he just doesn't pull punches. And Paul pretty clearly says, our ability to pray is utterly broken. Now, here's why that's good news. Because if any Christian survey, probably in the history of all time, has ever been correct, here's one of the things that it always says Christians routinely say, I'm no good at prayer. And so if if that's you, here's Paul going, you know why you feel like you're no good at prayer? Because apart from the Spirit, you know what? You're no good at prayer. We are foreigners to prayer. Prayer, speaking to God, telling Him of our desires and needs was once... Utterly natural to us, but it is no longer. Once, as Adam and Eve, our, our, our forefather and our foremother. Is that a thing? Is that right? Foremother? Fantastic. If it's not, it is now. Our foreparents, in the garden, they spoke to God Naturally. Perfectly. They walked with him in the cool of the day. They spoke to him face to face. But since the advent of sin, since we were removed from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, and in Genesis chapter 3, one of the most heartbreaking words in all of the passage, after sin, after the pronouncement of the curse, we're told that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Like, you get the sense they didn't want to go. They, they started to recognize what they lost in their sin, who they were losing, being removed from the garden, the presence of God. Since that point in time, our prayer antennae, our ability to speak to God, shattered. I was reading through a devotional uh, by Dane Ortland this week, through the Psalms, and It was on Psalm 18, and I came across this verse from David. He says this, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry reached his ears. On one hand, David is saying, Thank goodness God heard me. But do do you get the sense that David is proclaiming, Oh my gosh, I can't believe he heard me? From his temple far above, He heard me. My cries, they reached somehow his ears. David is saying the gap between us is so big. I'm overwhelmed in thankfulness that somehow my prayers reached his ears. But Paul says it's not just the gap. It's that even if we didn't have a gap, we don't even know what to say. But the Spirit, Paul tells us, intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Groanings too deep for words. On one hand, Paul is telling us the language of the Spirit is not our own. But that word groaning also emphasizes what the Spirit is saying on our behalf. The Spirit is groaning because He is grieving with us. His words to the Father are words of compassion. He has joined us in our weakness. And so now when he speaks to the Father, God the Father hears from God the Spirit, word of compassion for us. And not just that, but he conveys to our Lord in our grief and in our need only that which is good. That which is the will of God. And, and I want you to hear those two things are, are synonyms. That which is good and the will of God are the same thing. And, and I need you to hear this. I, I said that with trembling, weak knees. The last four weeks of transition have been Hard. And there have been many moments though I am learning and growing and loving you guys and I'm surrounded by friends. There are moments where I say, God, are you sure that this is good? We miss family and friends. But even though I wrestle and doubt, the truth is that the will of God is what is good for me and we are assured by Paul, that the Spirit will only ask of God what is good for us, what is our truest need, our deepest desire. Tim Keller says this, If we knew what the Lord knew, and I'd add, if we were as good as him, if we knew what the Lord knew and if we were as good as he is, then we would only ask of him what he gives us. He always gives us what is good. And this truth from Paul seems to say that it doesn't matter if you know what to pray. It doesn't matter if you feel awkward when you pray. It doesn't matter if you feel like you don't know how to pray. What's important is that you pray. Because he says, when you stumble, when you speak like a child, the spirit speaks on your behalf and intercedes on your behalf to the Father, the perfect words. Listen, there's a lot of babies that are being born in this church right now, which is, by the way, praise God. Uh, Rachel and I have five kids. We are not going to join you in that process. We are ready to be done. So bless you. Keep your pregnancies to yourself, please. Not, I, we want to celebrate the joy of it. We just don't want one. When you hear your album babble, none of you will go, this child needs lessons. I can't even understand what I'm saying. Speak up. Form your words right. right? None of You know what you guys are going to do? Oh, this is so cute. I love this. It's so cute. You're going to talk back to him in the same way. And it will overjoy you. And yet you will get the chance to go before your father and you will feel like, I can't speak to him. I don't know what to say and I don't know how to say it. And the spirit says, Come. You need the presence of God in the midst of your suffering, and we are assured that we have it perfectly by spirit. Always connected to him. He always hears. There will never be a time that we are not able to say with David that when we cried for help, he heard my voice. And like a good father, he responded. The spirit helps us in prayer. The spirit also helps us with a promise. Paul goes on and he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse probably more than any other in all of scripture. And this is a big statement has played a larger role in my Christian life than any other. And not because I believed it, but because I struggled to believe it's a long story. I won't go through it now, but an incredibly difficult time in Rachel and I's life. We prayed and we asked the Lord. We were in the the midst of adopting a little girl from Africa, a five-year-old girl. We had both been over to see her. We had declared that this the girl that the Lord had said was our daughter. We had FaceTimed with her. She knew the faces of our kiddos at that point in time. And after about a year and a half in, it all fell apart. And we pleaded with the Lord, God, bring her home. Bring her home. And he didn't. And I had just become an elder at this point in time. And, uh, one of the things when you become a, a pastor, uh, you're expected to pray a lot. Like you just show up to people's houses and they're like, you know what? Let's pray before we have Michael You're Where's Michael at? Bring him in from the room. He's the designated prayer. And so I had to pray for a lot of people. I struggled to pray for myself because I wrestled with God. How were you Good. Paul is making a promise and it is a enormous promise. And it's also worded incredibly specific. And so let's ask a few questions of this promise that Paul far more than Paul, the spirit gives to us first. Whom is this promise made? Paul makes two statements first. He says, and we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Two statements. For those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Now it's important for us to ask the question, is Paul kind of narrowing with two statements the pool of people that this promise is good for? And the answer to that is no. What Paul is doing is emphasizing the same group of people, but he's doing it in two different phrases. Paul is saying that the group of people, the audience that this is good for, are those that are called according to the purpose of God, which is the same people as those that love God. As believers, as those called the sons and daughters of God, we have been given a new heart is now inclined for, loves God. And it doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but it does mean that our nature now is pointed towards him. But Paul is not just emphasizing the recipient when he uses a phrase like for those who love God. He's also talking about the way that this promise is made. This is a promise made to those who love the Lord. And conversely, it's a promise made to those that the Lord loves. Maybe another way to put it is this promise is far more a wedding vow than it is a contractual agreement. This is the Lord God staring at you in the eyes with a face of joy and love towards you, making this promise. So what is the promise? And it's pretty simple. It's found right smack dab in the middle of the verse. The promise is good. The promise is for good. That word literally means pleasing. Jesus in a parable describes a good tree. It's a tree that is, yes, pleasing, but it's also a tree that is as it ought to be. A tree that is alive as it ought to be. A tree that is bearing fruit as it ought to bear fruit. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word good that's connected to a word in Hebrew that we use sometimes called shalom. Shalom that's oftentimes translated peace, but really mean a concept of wholeness. everything as it ought to be. It's that moment of deep exhale when you're in a place where you feel safe and you see the beauty of God's creation and you feel his presence and you exhale and you go, this is good. It's a word that described the Eden. It's as if the garden of Eden. It's as if the Lord is saying... That for all those that love me and that I love, those that are called my sons and daughter, what I am promising is that Eden will come and break into your life. Good as it ought to be where you were meant to be as my image bearers will come and break in, build in your life. But this word good also means good intrinsically. Good in nature, or maybe another way to say it, good, whether we recognize it or not. And this becomes critically important because this type of good, the fact that it is good, whether we see it is good or not, it allows for spaces for us to make statements that sound like, this doesn't seem good. Or it creates space for us to be able to say, but God, this doesn't feel good. Or perhaps it allows us to say to the Lord, I don't understand how this can be good. Let's keep going, asking this promise some questions. When and where is it effective? Well, Paul says, in all things, in everything, right? All things work together for good. Quick Greek lesson, that word all in Greek, do you know what it means? All. This guy knows Greek. It's fantastic. You guys missed your chance. I'm going to give you no chance. Right? Here, let's just pretend. Let's erase. I'm you, like, that didn't happen. Guys, the Greek word here, all, do you know what it means? Fan- fantastic. Fan- you guys, uh, listen, here's the deal. We're going to learn from each other. One of the things that I'm learning is when I ask you questions or if you turn to respond, it is very uncomfortable. Immediately, some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, what's happening? He's talking to me. It's okay. All it really means all every It's a big word. And specifically, coming off of the passage that Pastor Robert preached two weeks ago, specifically means in suffering. Or maybe a better way to put it is, even in these things, even in suffering and groaning and weakness and hardship and storms and depression and anxiety and illness and sickness and death and all the things that we don't want, God promises to work all things together for good, to work all things together for as it ought to be, that which is intrinsically by nature good and pleasing, whether we recognize it. That's when where this promise is effective. Finally, ask the question: Who is making driving this promise forward? And the answer is simple: God is. In the ESV translation, it can kind of sound like that things will just magically work together for good. Other translations, the NASB, translates this in a way that that helps us see the central importance of the Lord in this promise. They say, and we know God causes all things to work together for our good. He is the one that is driving this forward. In, in my previous life, before ministry, I worked for the Department of Homeland Security, and we, we did what we called infrastructure protection, which was everything from big stadiums and shopping malls all the way down to uh, refineries and hydroelectric dams. And every once in a while, we would go out into the field, and we'd help to assess kind of security posture procedures for these different sites. And I remember going to this hydroelectric dam, and I remember being in awe at the, the, the massive power of the rushing water. Just the, the, the size and the strength of it, the sound that it made. But the more powerful thing was the dam that was able to take the power of the water and convert it into something we needed. Convert it into electricity. The Spirit of God is saying the same thing to us. He is saying, Your suffering is great. The storms of this life are powerful. Our enemy is strong, and sin kills. And yet, the power of the Spirit is far stronger than our suffering, and He's able to use that which is destructive on its own, that which might kill us on its own. But by His power, He is able to harness it, even use it, in order to bring that which gives life. This is the good that our Father promises firm foundation, to conform us in the image of Christ Jesus and to bring us what is truly good. Now listen, sometimes you may be just caught in the midst of rush water and it feels like you are drowning And I'd love to to give you one of those promises that says the coming a day where you'll be able to look back and you'll understand all that the Lord God has done in your life. It'll be clear. And what I'm going to tell you is that's not true. If someone makes that promise to you, they are leading you astray. You might not be able to look back and see why everything happened and how it all makes sense, but you know what you will be able to see? That your father is good. That he was with you and that he loves you. He is leading you in paths of righteousness and light. And so here's my admonition in the midst of your suffering as the Spirit gives us this promise let him bear the weight of his promise. This is what I had to do again when I didn't understand why the Lord acted in the way that he did. The thing that finally got me back into the presence of God on my knees, hearing his voice in prayer, was finally being able to say, I didn't have to make this promise. You could have just said, Listen, guys, suffering's hard, right? Life is hard, and what happens? Then we die. I think I got that on a Hallmark card. The Lord could have just said that, and you know what would have been true. But he specifically bore the weight here and said, look at me. I will work all things together for your good. So don't try and release the pressure valve on him. Don't go, I don't know that I trust that, so I'm just going to God. You, You know, like, pick up the slack that I can't work together for good. Like, when I fail, God, when I'm not enough, then you can be enough. And he says, stop it. I will bear the entire weight of the history and story of your entire life and promise you right now that even your own sin, when you sin against me, I will use it for good. That's the confidence that we have as believers. He helps us with a promise. And finally, the Spirit helps us as our pledge. He concludes this passage, Paul, like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Following the promise of Romans 8.28, Paul shows us how this promise, at least some of it, is going to work out. How all things will work together for our good. He begins by saying, those who God foreknew, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. This word foreknew doesn't mean that he knew things about these people, us. It means that he knew us intimately. This word, know, is used oftentimes in the Old Testament for when a woman, a wife, and a husband consummate their marriage, they come to know one another. When God says that he foreknew us, it means that even before we were created, he knew us intimately, that we existed in the very mind of God, that we're never strangers to him. Before the foundation of the world, the one said, He already knew us. And not only did he know us, as he brought us forth lovingly, creating us, he had already determined that though we would be born marred in a sinful world, that he would conform us into the perfect image of his son, Jesus. You know, as there's been this influx of beautiful image bearers, babies that are being born into the church. Um, it, it's always fun to talk to different couples, especially as they're pregnant. Because everybody has their own process and they do things different, whether they find out the sex of the baby or whether they like, name the baby early or if they name the baby early, if they'll tell people their name. And so there's always a little bit of like a, a, a little dance that you do when you ask questions. Maybe I shouldn't stop asking so many questions. Maybe that's the lesson here. But I digress for Rachel and I, we, we always, we would, we would find out the sex of the baby and we were old. So we had to wait till 20 weeks. Um, you gotta now get it at 10 weeks, which seems unfair. I feel like there's another 10 weeks of suffering consternation that you should have to, cause I love you. Um, but when we would find out, we would pretty soon afterward, if we didn't already have a boy and a girl name picked out, we would name the baby. And and here's why. Because for me, who didn't carry the baby or didn't have to deal with any of the adverse effects that I have heard about, um, the name somehow allowed me to connect with the baby. So as soon as Noah was Noah, my oldest, I could talk to him. In my mind I already, though I'd never met this child face to face, I knew him. And there was a level of connection, of intimacy that I had with him. And Paul is saying, this is the level of intimacy that our Heavenly Father, the creator of all things, including the planets... And the stars in the sky, he intimately knew you, and as he knew you, he already had predestined, determined for him, that you would be conformed into the image of Christ Jesus, that he would redeem. it's the name of our church, all that was broken and lost in our lives, so that we might be as we ought to be the perfect image chairs, which is defined in Christ Jesus. Paul continues on from this, and he lays out what's often known as the golden chain of salvation. I love that phrase, the golden chain of salvation. I'm going to get one made, right? It says this, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the Spirit doing here in this glorious path of salvation? Well, the Spirit is our pledge in it that it will happen. He is the pledge that God has made that it will indeed occur and in fact must. Let me remind you of what Pastor Robert preached just last week in Romans 8, chapter or chapter 8, verse 23, says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. One commentator said this God commanded the Israelites to present a portion of their harvest that ripened first. These were first fruits as an offering to Him. This offering acknowledged that the whole harvest was from Him, and that in fact it really was His. It was an offering that the Israelites made in faith. Confident that the rest of the harvest would follow. And like these first fruits, God's gift of the Spirit, the commencement of believers, Christian life is his pledge. That he began a good work, will complete it. You see this phrase, as the Spirit is our pledge that it will occur. Paul uses several past tense verbs to to discuss what has already happened for believers. They are predestined. They are called by God. They are justified. But he also uses the past tense verb for glorified. But elsewhere, he tells us that glorification is something that had not happened yet. Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. One day, when the chief shepherd appears, 1 Peter says, you will receive the unfitting crown of glory. 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment that is glorified. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I have to stretch before I sleep. This is not a glorified body. Very depressing if I show up to glory and this is what I get. No? No one is with me there? Did someone just say amen? I really appreciate that. That was, that was fantastic. So why is Paul saying we're already glorified? Why is it past tense when clearly these are not the glorified bodies that we are awaiting on? He's saying it because it is so assured, so definite, that it will happen because of the pledge of the Spirit that it's as good as already done. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made from our hands, but eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, uncovered. For while we're still in this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed with Christ, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, he who has prepared for us this very thing, glorified bodies, he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, as a pledge. This suffering is not just something that can't be compared with the glory that awaits, but this suffering and the work of the Spirit and his presence in our life in the midst of it is actually a pledge that it is being worked out in us right now. That in fact, suffering can do Nothing but prepare us for glory. A pastor uh, that spoke at an Acts 29 retreat, he said this one time in regard to suffering. After unpacking the very same truth, he said, it's as if we could walk into the room with suffering and say to it, hello, my slave. Now produce me the glory that God intends. Gosh, I want to I believe that. I want to live like that is true. Hello, my slave, suffering, hardship. Hello, my slave, even my failure and sin now produce in me the glory, the good that my king intends. Listen, this life is filled with many trials and temptations. It is filled with storms and sufferings whether you are going into it in the midst of it or having just finished it, it is a part of the Christian life. But it's also not simply a life to endure, to get through. Because the Lord has promised that by the power of his spirit, he is with us. And he is working in us and through us that we are being drawn to him, that he is pouring out his lavish grace upon us, and that even now he is transforming us into the image of Christ Jesus. As a kid, I hated car rides. Just like every kid, I would ask my parents a million times, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Since I got married car rides where our children are strapped to seats that they can't move from it become these beautiful little moments for Rachel and I on long car rides to like have a conversation and to talk with each other and it's as now when we get these rides and these moments we get to draw closer to one another and figure out where we are with each other and and wrestle through difficult things that if we weren't seated next to each other three and a half hours in a car ride, we probably wouldn't get around to discussing. We love getting to the destination and the destination is beautiful wherever we're going. But there's also beauty that happens on the way. And the Lord wouldn't have us miss it. So here is beloved. In the midst of this world, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, because the spirit helps us in the midst of our weakness. We can proclaim that the Lord our God is good and what he is doing in us, whether we see it or not, is also good. Pray with me.